order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Rosie Cooper. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure that the whole House would like to join me in paying tribute to Baroness Trumpington, who sadly passed away yesterday. From her time at Bletchley Park as a codebreaker during the Second World War, through to her time in government and public service, she led an extraordinary life and she will be sorely missed. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Rosie Cooper. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House would want to be associated with the Prime Minister's remarks. Um, the misery inflicted on my constituents by Northern Rail continues unabated. Long waits for already full trains don't arrive on time. Um, whole day cancellations and even the cancellation of last trains leaving people stranded. There can be no more excuses. This latest Northern Rail fiasco began in May with communications issues and, sorry, timetabling and communications issues. Prime Minister, isn't it time to get the communications right and timetable the end of the Northern franchise? Can I, can I say to the Honourable Lady, first of all, I'm, I am clear, we are clear as a government that the performance in the North and the disruption that was caused to rail passengers was unacceptable following the timetable changes that took place in May the 20th. I think it's clear it's clear that we saw a combination of delayed network rail infrastructure works and reduced uh, time to plan a modified timetable, which meant that the new timetable was finalised too late. And we know that passengers are currently not getting the service they deserve, although there are more services in Northern Rail uh, now than there were uh, compared to earlier this year. But much more does need to be done. And of course, what we have, are doing is working alongside Transport for the North, Northern Northern Transpennine Express and Network Rail in improving services and improving punctuality. And of course, we have asked Richard George to review the performance of the region's rail network to make recommendations to improve reliability. And where operators are found to be at fault, then we will take action. Dross. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. No one can question the Prime Minister's uh, work ethic and determination to reach a deal with the European Union, a deal that many people thought was unachievable. Uh, but despite her best endeavours, there are still considerable concerns that many people have that this has left us with an uncomfortable choice, and I share those concerns. So, as the Prime Minister heads to Scotland, can I ask what guarantees she can give to those who have concerns? about the future of the fishing industry under this deal and also our precious union. Can I say to my honourable friend that he is absolutely right to raise the issue of the, uh, of the fishing industry and of our precious union. And I am a committed unionist, as he is, and as indeed all my colleagues on the Conservative benches are. Um, our deal in relation to fishes, fishering, fishing, fisheries means that we will become an independent coastal state. That means that we will be able to negotiate access to our waters. We will be ensuring our fishing communities get a fairer share of our waters. We will be determining that issue of access to our waters. And, I, and we firmly rejected a link of access to our waters and access to markets. I have to say to, uh, also that we are very clear, as I made clear in my statement on Monday, that we will not be trading off a fisheries agreement against anything else in this future relationship. 
and indeed the support for the deal. I'm, I'm uh, confident that my honourable friend will have seen the support for the deal that has been recognised by the Scottish Fishing Federation. Amy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I echo the Prime Minister's words about Baroness Trumpington. We thank her for her service to this country throughout her life. We'll also remember her as a great codebreaker and a very dis- demonstrative member of the House of Lords with her physical symbols. And also her wit on Have I Got News for You. I also, Mr. Speaker, want to pay tribute to my friend Harry Leslie Smith. Who- Harry passed away early this morning in Canada. Harry also served in the war. He was an irrepressible campaigner for the rights of refugees, for the welfare state and for our National Health Service. He was passionate about the principle of health care for all as a human right. We thank Harry for his life and his work. On Sunday, the Foreign Secretary said of their Brexit deal, it mitigates most of the negative impacts. Can the Prime Minister tell us which of the negative impacts it does not mitigate? (laughs) Can I I first of all, I'm sure that the the whole House will wish to pass our condolences as well to the family and friends of Harry Leslie Smith. Uh, What we see behind the uh, analysis that that we have published today, and indeed the Chancellor recognised this morning, is that our deal is the best deal available for jobs and our economy that allows us to honour the referendum and realise the opportunities of Brexit. This this analysis does not show that we will be poorer in the future than we are today. No, it does not. It shows... It shows we'll be better off with this deal. What would make us poorer, what would have an impact on our economy for the future, would be the policies of the right honourable gentleman. More borrowing, higher taxes, fewer jobs. The biggest risk, the biggest risk to our economy is the right honourable gentleman and his shadow chancellor. Mr Speaker, on the same day that that statement was made, the Prime Minister said, this is the best possible deal, it's the only possible deal. Well, I mean to say, it's not hard to be the best deal if it's the only deal. (laughs) By definition, by therefore, Mr Speaker, by definition, it's also the worst deal. (laughs) Mr Speaker, the government... um, The government economic service forecasts published today are actually meaningless because there's no actual deal to model, just a 26-page wish list. The Chancellor, however, said that her deal will make people worse off. Does the Prime Minister agree? He doesn't appear to be here this morning to be consulted. As As I've just set out to the right honourable gentleman, what the analysis shows, it does show that this deal that we have negotiated is the best deal for our jobs and our economy, which delivers on the results of the referendum for the British people. And I believe that we, uh, that we should be delivering on the result of the referendum. But he talks about, he talks about the uh, political declaration. He calls it a wish list. Now, what he's describing is a political declaration that's been agreed between the United Kingdom and the European Union that sets out an ambitious, broad, deep and flexible partnership across trade and economic cooperation, law enforcement and criminal justice, foreign policy, security and defence and wider areas of cooperation. And what does Labour have to offer? Six bullet points. My weekend shopping list is longer than that. 
Speaker, after eight years of making our economy weaker through austerity, their botched Brexit threatens more of the same. Professor Alston said in his damning UN report into UK poverty, and I quote, in my meetings with the government, it was clear to me that the impact of Brexit on people in poverty is an afterthought. In her Chequers plan, the Prime Minister promised frictionless trade with Europe after Brexit. Her future partnership guarantees no such thing. Does the Prime Minister understand why MPs are queuing up not to back her plan? I can tell the right honourable gentleman who is backing my plan. Farmers in Wales, fishermen in Scotland, employers in Northern Ireland. And when and when and when MPs when MPs come to look at this vote, they will need to look at the importance of us delivering on Brexit and ensuring that we deliver Brexit and doing it in a way that protects jobs. And on that subject, he referenced what had happened to the economy over the last eight years. We've seen the number of young people not in education, employment or training at record lows. We see borrowing this year at its lowest level for 13 years. We see more people in work than ever before, the fastest regular wage growth for nearly a decade. And today, we've seen the number of children living in workless households at a record low and the proportion of workless households at a record low. That's good, balanced management of the economy by the Conservatives. Mr Speaker, if it's good, managed, uh, good balanced management of the economy, then why did Professor Alston say there are 14 million people in our country living in poverty? And when she claims support for her deal, last week more than 200 chief executives and entrepreneurs described her Brexit deal as the worst of all worlds. Uh, order. Mr Morris, calm yourself. Take some sort of soothing medicament if that is what is required, but above all, calm yourself. Jeremy Corbyn! And Mr Speaker, a private email the CBI sent round says, says of the deal, no need to give credit to negotiators, I think, because it's not a good deal. All the Prime Minister can commit to is we'll be working for frictionless trade. She's gone from guaranteeing frictionless trade to offering friction and less trade. <laughs> after these, after these uh, botched negotiations, Mr Speaker, the country has no faith in the next stage of even more complex negotiations being concluded in just two years. So what does the Prime Minister think is preferable? Extending the transition with further vast payments to the European Union or falling into the backstop with no exit? Well, as the right honourable gentleman knows, there is an exit from the backstop. There is an alternative to the backstop, but we don't want the backstop to be invoked in the first place. And and neither, neither does the uh, Government of uh, the Republic of Ireland, and neither does the European Union. But let me just see, he, he's referring again to this issue of the uh, political declaration and the na nature of the political declaration. He will know 
that the European Union cannot agree and sign legal text on a trade arrangement with a country that is a member of the European Union, so they cannot do that until we have left the European Union. And let me just say that, this to him. The December joint report was 16 pages long, and it took less than a year to turn it into 599 pages of legal text. The political declaration is 26 pages long. It is perfectly possible to turn that into the legal text within the nearly two years that is available. At every stage, people have said we couldn't do what we've done. They said we couldn't get agreement last December. We did. They said we wouldn't get an implementation period. We did. They said we wouldn't agree a withdrawal agreement or political declaration. We did. It takes hard work and a firm commitment to work in the national interest, and that's what this government has. Mr Speaker, that would explain why the Business Secretary doesn't have much faith in this either. He's already discussing a transition period being extended to 2022, apparently. Parliament voted, <coughs> Mr Speaker, Parliament voted for the Government to publish its legal advice in full. The Government today says it will ignore the sovereign will of Parliament. In 2007, the Prime Minister wrote to the then Prime Minister saying the legal advice for the Iraq war should have been published in full to Cabinet and MPs. So why doesn't the Prime Minister practice what she preached? Of course, there's a legitimate desire in Parliament to understand the legal implications of the deal. We have said and we have been clear that we will make available to members a full reasoned position statement laying out the Government's legal position on the withdrawal agreement and, and the Attorney-General is willing to assist Parliament by making an oral statement and answering questions from members. But as regards publication of the full legal advice, the advice any client receives from their lawyer is privileged. That's the same for government as it is for any member of the public. Well, the Chancellor said what we're not going to do is publish the raw legal advice from the Attorney General. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister herself wanted legal advice in the past. MPs need to see that advice, warts and all, so they can make their informed decision on this matter. The Prime Minister insists that her government will be able to negotiate every aspect of the UK's future trade relationship with Europe within the space of two years. We've had two and a half years since the referendum. So far, 20 of our own ministers have resigned. This is the most shambolic government in living memory. And she is now asking Parliament to vote on the basis of a 26-page wish list without even seeing the full legal advice. It's now clear that Parliament will not back this plan. So isn't it time for her to accept that reality and make way for an alternative plan that can work for the whole country? Let me say to the Right Honourable Gentleman, I will take no lectures from the Right Honourable Gentleman, who has seen 100 resignations from his front bench. But, but I will also say this. Today, today we saw what really lies behind Labour's approach. Last night, the Shadow Chancellor told an audience in London that he wanted to seize upon a second referendum and, and vote remain. So now we have it. They want to cause chaos, frustrate Brexit, overturn the will of the British people, and that would be a betrayal of the many by the few. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
John Lamont, Mr. Lamont. Uh, Mr. Speaker, Small Business Saturday takes place this week. This is a great campaign which encourages us all to support local shops and businesses across our land. In Scotland, there are over 340,000 small and medium-sized businesses supporting 1.2 million jobs. So will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating the Federation of Small Business and all the small businesses who take part in this event, but particularly Lindsay Greve, the butcher in Hoyt, Stems, the florist in Jedburgh, and Archie Humes, the gentleman's outfitters in Kelsey. <laughs> can, I, can I thank my honourable friend for raising what I think we should all accept across this House as an excellent campaign, and I look forward, when I am in his neck of the woods, perhaps to being able to visit some of the excellent shops that he has just, uh, he's just quoted. It is, in, it is important that we help small businesses, and that is why we are taking over 655,000 small businesses out of paying any business rates at all. Uh, and we want to change the system so that rates follow the lower level of inflation. That means a saving every year and worth over five billion to businesses over the next five years. And we're providing 900 million to cut eligible small retailers' bills by one third for two years. So I congratulate uh, Lindsay, Breve, Stems the Florist, and Archie Hume. I look forward possibly to visiting them, and I'm sure that many members of this House will be recognising the importance of small businesses on Small Business Saturday and championing the excellent contribution they make to our economy. Ian Blackford! Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I take the opportunity to wish everyone in the House a happy St Andrew's Day when it comes on Friday? Mr Speaker, today the Chancellor said that the Prime Minister's Brexit deal will leave the economy slightly smaller and in pure economic terms there will be a loss. Now we now know that this has been confirmed by the government's own analysis that real wages will fall. Does the Prime Minister agree her deal will leave people poorer than the status quo? The analysis shows no. What the, the analysis does not show that we will be poorer than the status quo today. What it shows, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. What, what, the, what the analysis shows is that this is a strong economy which will continue to grow, and that the, the model which actually delivers best on delivering for the vote of the British people and for our jobs and our economy is the model that the government has put forward, is the deal that the government is proposing. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I do wonder if the Prime Minister has read their own, own analysis, because quite clearly, under any scenario, leaving the single market and the customs union will be poorer. The Prime Minister wants to take us back to the days of Thatcher and a belief that unemployment is a price worth paying. That's the reality. No government, Mr Speaker, should choose to weaken its economy and make its citizens poorer. That's what the Prime Minister is doing. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister will travel to Scotland today. People in Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain. We voted for our rights to be respected. Order, order. Now, the right honourable gentleman is entitled to be heard, and he will be heard as every other member of this House will be heard. It's a simple point. Please digest it. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will travel to Scotland today. 
People in Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain. We voted for our rights to be respected, and we are not prepared to give up those rights. The Prime Minister must explain to the people of Scotland why her deal will rob them of their rights as EU citizens. Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, he started his remarks by comments about uh, unemployment and the government's approach to unemployment. What do we see under this government? 3.3 million jobs have been created since the Conservatives came into power. And the OBR forecasting a further 800,000 more jobs being created in our economy. Employment rate is a near record high. Employment is at a record high. Unemployment rate is almost halved since 2010. And he, vote, he talks about what the people of Scotland voted for. They voted to stay in the United Kingdom and they voted for 13 Conservative MPs. Trevelyan. Yeah. It's the fact with any divorce proceedings that if the parties cannot reach a fair and equitable agreement, they go to a judge to ask for a decision. Mr Speaker, in the case of the divorce between the UK and the EU, this Parliament must be the judge. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that once this Parliament has rejected the EU's controlling and dominating proposal, which won't leave us free to decide our future, that the UK will be better off actually spending the money we set aside to prepare for a clean global Brexit? Can I say to to my honourable friend that what... Order, order. The honourable lady's question was heard. And I want to hear the Prime Minister's reply. And the Prime Minister is entitled to have that reply properly heard. The Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Backing this Brexit deal means that we will control our own borders, we'll end free movement once and for all, we'll protect jobs with a deal that's good for our economy, we'll no longer send vast sums of money every year to the European Union, we can spend it on our priorities, and we'll be able to strike free trade deals around the world, as well as taking back control of our laws and having a good security partnership. But if we reject this deal, we go back to square one with damaging uncertainty that would threaten jobs, threaten our investment and the economy, and lead to more division. I mean, there was less time to focus on the issues that our constituents wish us to focus on. So I think the choice is backing the deal in the national interest so we can build that brighter future, or going back to square one if it is rejected. Tracy Brabin. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Matthew, is one of those very brave people who have waved their anonymity around abuse they suffered at the hands of a member of the Church of England. The Prime Minister will be very aware of the harrowing evidence coming out of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, which could have been prevented if a law on mandatory reporting had been in place. International evidence shows mandatory reporting doubles the number of children placed into safety when introduced. Will the Prime Minister commit to protect children and introduce mandatory reporting across all institutions, including the Church of England? Can I I first of all all, uh, say how sorry I am to hear of the case of her constituent Matthew and the abuse that he suffered? Sadly, what we have seen coming out of this independent inquiry is so too much abuse that was allowed to carry on for too long and too many people suffered as a result. And it isn't just the case that they suffered at the time the abuse was taking place. That suffering remains with them to this day. 
and I think we should all recognise that. Now, she's raised the issue of mandatory reporting. We did look at this very carefully. Uh, when, uh, w- indeed, when I was Home Secretary, we looked at this very carefully. Actually, there is mixed evidence as to the impact that mandatory reporting has, uh, and there is some evidence that, in some, in some, uh, some evidence that it can actually lead to the genuine cases not being given the resources that they that they require. But I, I say to the honourable lady. Uh, I don't want her to be in any doubt of the seriousness with which I and this government take this issue. We are repairing, uh, doing our best to repair. I won't claim we can fully repair, but doing our best to repair by giving some sense of justice to those people who suffered at the hands of too many institutions, including institutions of the state, for too long. Theresa Villiers. Mr Speaker, many of my constituents are worried about crime, and the Chancellor in his budget speech acknowledged that policing is under pressure because of the changing nature of crime. With decisions on the National Police Funding Settlement imminent, can I urge the Prime Minister to make sure we can get more police on the beat in Barnet and beyond? Can I say to my right honourable friend, I recognise the concern that she has expressed, and I'd like to reassure her that obviously we have been protecting police funding since 2015. We have enabled police forces to further increase funding through the council tax precept, and this year, including council tax, there's an additional £460 million available to the police. Um, but I recognise that the uh, issue that she has raised, and we will continue to ensure that the police have the resources they need to cut crime and keep our communities safe. But of course, it is also, there is also a role for chief constables and police and crime commissioners as operational leaders and elected local representatives to decide how best to deploy resources to manage and respond to individual crimes and indeed to local crime priorities. Chapman. I know the Prime Minister is visiting Scotland today, and I hear that there's already great dancing in the streets. So yeah. <laughs> But like most Scots, I've been absolutely horrified by the arrogant, shambolic and non-inclusive way in which the government have gone about uh, the Brexit negotiations over two tortuous years. What lessons has the Prime Minister learned so we can have a very simple, more productive and faster negotiations when we decide to dissolve the Act of Union? Can I say to the honourable gentleman, um, he will be well aware of the vote that took place in 2014 and the desire of the Scottish people to remain in the United Kingdom. We have, at every stage throughout the negotiations, been working with the devolved administrations. Uh, indeed, my right honourable friend, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, has been having regular meetings with uh, the devolved administrations. Officials have been meeting them, so we have ensured that the voice of the devolved administrations has been heard in our negotiations. Simon Hall. Thank you, Mr. The, um, the small businesses of North Dorset's market towns play a vital role in our local economy. On the cusp of Small Business Saturday, can she assure me that she will, and if necessary, intervene to ensure that the rules governing the provision of rural cash machines are safeguarded and that the actual needs of our rural communities are recognised, therefore underpinning those vital jobs and businesses in our rural communities? Well, can I thank my honourable friend again for recognising the importance of small businesses, and particularly, as he says, in rural communities. And we recognise that the widespread free access to cash remains extremely important in the day-to-day lives of many consumers and businesses throughout the UK. Uh, Link, which is the UK's cash machine network, is committed to maintain 
maintaining free access to cash through its extensive footprint of ATMs, and the payment systems regulator set up by the government is ensuring that the UK payment system work in the interests of their users, and they regulate Link. And I can assure my honourable friend that the regulator is closely monitoring the situation and is holding Link to account for its commitments to maintain that broad geographic spread of ATMs across the United Kingdom. David Linden. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Um, Watching your premature baby in an incubator hooked up to oxygen, being given assistance to breathe, is an incredibly difficult experience. And I can say that because both of my children have been through that. But the reality is, with statutory paternity leave, the law does not work for parents of premature babies. We spend weeks on uh, neonatal intensive care units, and we want to take our paternity leave more than the 56 days. So will the Prime Minister agree to meet with me in the campaign charity Bliss look at how we can give support to parents of premature babies. Well, can I thank the Honourable Gentleman for raising this issue, which is obviously, through personal experience, very close to his heart, but I know one that is of, of concern to other members across this House. Um, the, I under, what I understand is that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy is undertaking a review of the provisions for parents of premature babies, as they are the department responsible for the parental leave um, uh, legislation, but also those that experience multiple births. And they're working with charities representing parents of premature babies, parents of babies who require neonatal care to better understand the pressures and the, the issues that those parents have to face when their child is born prematurely or sick. They expect to be in a position to share the key findings of this review with interested parties in the new year. And I will ensure that the relevant minister from the department meets with him and the charity to hear that, that experience firsthand. David Amy. Last week a debate took place at Durham Union. The motion was, this House believes that the United Kingdom is less united than ever. I was part of the team opposing the motion and we comfortably defeated the motion. Would my right honourable friend agree with those young people that the agreement this House is being asked to vote on actually threatens our union, was worked out by largely unelected people and has a distinct Remain flavour. My my honourable friend might not be surprised if I say actually I don't quite share his analysis of the the deal that we've put forward. Look, this is is a deal that does deliver on Brexit. I think this is important. It does deliver on Brexit, but it does so in a way that does protect our United Kingdom. That was an issue that I uh, have set out in this House on many occasions, and it's one that we were very keen uh, to ensure uh, was dealt with in this uh, this deal. It's a deal that protects jobs, but it's a deal that delivers on people's votes to ensure that we leave the European Union and that we do so in a way that delivers no free movement, no jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, not sending those vast annual sums to the European Union every year. But can I thank my honourable friend for engaging with those young people in Durham uh, and debating this matter with them. I think it's very important we get young people, ensure young people maintain that interest in politics. Dame Louise Elman. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Chancellor has broadcast to the nation that Brexit will make the UK poorer. The Prime Minister's last-minute concession in Europe puts Gibraltar's future on the line, and our long-term trade arrangements are simply unknown. Article 50 can be revoked 
Isn't it time for a people's vote with an option to remain? Uh, can I say to the Honourable Lady, I mean, first of all, I've already quoted, reference what the Chancellor said. Her, her uh, reference to the Chief Minister of Gibraltar, to the issue of Gibraltar, uh, is, goes co- absolutely contrary to what the Chief Minister of Gibraltar has said about the way in which the United Kingdom has absolutely stood by Gibraltar, and we will continue to stand by Gibraltar. She will have heard me saying before uh, that I believe, in terms of a second referendum, it's important that we deliver on the vote of the British people. But I would also just ask her to consider this. Uh, it wouldn't be possible to hold a referendum before March the 29th of next year. That would mean having to extend Article 50. She wants to extend Article 50, delaying Brexit or leaving with no deal. I believe the best option for this country is to ensure that we deliver on the Brexit vote, that we leave the European Union next March, that we don't delay uh, that, uh, that point, and we leave with a good deal that will protect jobs across the country. Sir Desmond Swain. Is she concerned about religious persecution in the Holy Land, and will she welcome the visit of the Patriarch of Jerusalem? Can I, I thank my uh, right honourable friend, and of course, Of course, he will know that this weekend does mark the start of Advent, which is uh, a time of expectation and hope for Christians. And today is Red Wednesday, a day when landmark buildings, including these houses of Parliament, will turn scarlet as an act of solidarity with persecuted Christians. I would certainly like to welcome the Patriarch of Jerusalem for his upcoming visit. And I know that some Israelis can face additional structural challenges, particularly Christian and Muslim Arab Israelis, who experience higher rates of poverty and unemployment and who can face discrimination. And we certainly encourage the Israeli government to do all it can to uphold the values of equality for all enshrined in its laws. But can I give my right honourable friend the assurance that I will continue to work with governments, with the international community, with the United Nations, to support the rights of minorities, including Christians. Sir Vince Cable. Uh, in, the, uh, in the next 10 days, there will hopefully be informed debate on the government's proposals on Brexit and various alternative routes, including an election, the people's vote, no doubt others. But there is absolutely no reason why the public should be alarmed by continuing discussion of a chaotic no deal, because it's entirely within the power of this House and the government to stop it. So will she reassure the public that under no circumstances this will happen? The the right honourable gentleman with his long years in this House will know that, as he uh, has said, we will, on December 11th, be looking at the deal that the government has negotiated with the European Union. I believe there is a clear choice. I believe backing that deal will provide people with certainty and ensure that we deliver on the vote of uh, the British people in the best way for for jobs and for our economy. And failure to back that deal, I believe, would lead to chaos and uncertainty for people for the future. And the clear message, the clear message I get around the country is that people don't want that chaos and don't want that uncertainty. Mrs Anne Main. This country exports vast amounts of plastic to developing countries. Could we, under the, that's under the guise of recycling, could we incentivise recycling in this country and seek to ban us exporting our rubbish to other countries where it often ends up in landfill or in the ocean? Uh, my honourable friend has raised an important issue and she, I, I hope, recognises the action the government has taken in relation to plastic. I was very pleased yesterday when I was at the Winter Fair at the Royal Welsh to see a company that actually 29 years ago started turning, uh, taking plastic and turning it into products 
that people uh, could use, recycling it into things like garden seats and, uh, and tables. This was an, a, a, an innovative initiative 29 years ago. It's right bang, slap bang into what we all consider to be the right thing to do today. Dan Carden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, Speaker. Done. The Prime Minister is currently travelling the country seeking public support for her Brexit deal that she says will secure industry and jobs. So will she visit Camelaird shipyard in Birkenhead, where workers have been forced into industrial action, fighting the threat of casualisation, to save hundreds of skilled, secure jobs in Merseyside at a company that has won £620 million of government RAF contracts? Because what faith can people have in the future she offers if she will not act to save skilled, secure jobs in our own defence industry. Can I, can I first of all say to the Honourable Gentleman, I realise what a worrying time this must be for the employers of, of Camel Laird. Uh, obviously, the government doesn't have a role in the strategic directional management of the company, but officials are in touch with the company. Officials are in close contact with the company and are being kept informed. And I hope that there can be a dialogue between all sides to work together to come to a solution that is in the best interests of all involved. As I say, I recognise what a worrying time this must be for the employees of that company. Zach Goldsmith. Mr Speaker, it's been very widely reported that fearing a backlash here in the UK, the Prime Minister personally intervened to stop the government offering sanctuary to Asia Bibi, the Pakistani Christian mother who faces a very, very serious threat to her life. Can the Prime Minister please take this opportunity to put the record straight and to commit to doing everything this country can to offering sanctuary to that mother? Can I say to uh, my honourable friend, uh, first of all, uh, I, I might say this in answer to a number of questions, but uh, my honourable friend shouldn't necessarily believe everything that he reads in the papers. What, what the, position of the, the position of the government takes is very clear. The absolute prime concern that we must have is the safety and security of Asia Bibi and her family, and we want to see a swift resolution of the situation. And this is obviously there's a, a primary function for the courts and government in Pakistan. And the Prime Minister Imran Khan has publicly supported the Supreme Court. He's promised to uphold the rule of law while providing continued protection for Asia Bibi. We could approach this in two ways. We could say, um, you know, we want to go out there and say something just so that we show that the UK is doing that. Or we can say, what is right for Asia Bibi? We are working with other countries to make sure as I say, that our prime, uh, a prime aim, which is the safety and security of Asia Bibi and her family, are what is, uh, you know, what is provided for. So we're working with other, uh, in, others in the international community and with the Pakistani government on that. And Mrs. Sharon Hodgson. Speaker, this morning in the Westminster Hall debate on the proposed plan for the Time and WFI and Rescue Service, the Minister finally admitted that in relation to funding, and I quote, Time and Weir has had a more challenging settlement than other fire authorities. How will the Prime Minister right this wrong? Yeah. Well done, Sharon. Well, can I say to the Lady, it sounds to me as if she's already raised her concerns in relation to this matter with the debate in, with the debate in Westminster Hall. With the debate in Westminster Hall. And, uh, and we have... Yes? 
We have been looking at the issue of fire authorities. Uh, what we have seen over time is some, sometimes actually plans attempting to be put forward on which money has been spent, which have not worked for fire authorities. It is important that we make sure that the, uh, the uh, level of uh, protection that they provide and the level of support that they provide is, uh, is there. And obviously, she has had a response from the Minister this morning. Charlie Ilfick. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, the Prime Minister will be aware that in uh, recent weeks, an unprecedented number of migrants, more than 100 migrants, have crossed the English Channel to enter the United Kingdom in small, unseaworthy craft. Does she agree with me it's very important that Britain and France work together to find the people traffickers behind this, to put a stop to them, bring them to justice, and ensure that we invest more in our border security. Yes. Well, my, my honourable friend has raised a very important point, with which he is acutely aware as, as the member for Dover. Uh, my, uh, back in, earlier in the year, in our discussions with the French government, we agreed that we could set up a coordination centre which would enable the French and UK governments and, and authorities to work together on exactly these sorts of issues. And my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, has ensured that that coordination centre has now been stood up literally in the last few days. I'm in Newland. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> the, um, the liquidated company Helms used the UK government's Green Deal scheme to mislead and defraud hundreds of my Rimshire constituents. Helms owner Robert Skillen has recently emerged from hiding, and while he is ultimately responsible and should face the consequences, no one expects to be scammed by a government-backed deal. Will the Prime Minister do the right thing? Step in and compensate the Helms customers for the money stolen from them under a UK government banner. Can I say to the honourable gentleman, I'm not aware of the details of the case that he's raised, and perhaps it would be better if I were to write to him in response to his question. Andrea Jenkins. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It is of great concern to my constituent, Carol Law, a staunch Brexiteer, how her name has ended up on the database of anothereurope.org, the left-leaning and Remain campaign group. From this organisation, Carol this week received an unsolicited email, seemingly from the right honourable member for, from Tottenham and the honourable member for Brighton Pavilion, asking her to stop Brexit. Carol is, ever, however, a smart lady and knows that our best years lie ahead outside the EU. So can the Prime Minister please take this opportunity to educate the members opposite about GDPR rules and ask them to remove Carol from any databases that they are associated with. Well, can, I, can, I, can I say to my honourable can I say to my honourable friend that I think everybody needs to take care in relation to the names that they have on databases. Uh, but the core point of what she was saying was to reveal the view that a number of people have on the Labour benches that actually they should be trying to stop Brexit. I believe we should be delivering Brexit for the British people. And as my honourable friend I believe, believes, and indeed I concur with her, we should, outside the European Union, there is a bright future ahead for this country. Our best days lie ahead of us. Bambos Charalambos. Uh, my constituent, Sarah Rushton's brother, has been missing for over two years. Yesterday I met with her and Peter Lawrence, the father of Claudia Lawrence, who expressed the frustration that the Guardianship Missing Persons Act 2017 has yet to be implemented, despite receiving royal assent in April 2017, and it is unlikely to take effect until July 2019. Can the Prime Minister assure me that there will be no further delays in the measures of the Act being fully implemented? Yeah. 
I, I, can I say to the honourable gentleman that I will ensure that the minister responsible will be in touch with him in relation to the application of the, the, the uh, enactment of those uh, provisions. Mr. Peter Bone. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Lord European Union Committee stated, on the basis of the legal opinions we have considered. We conclude that, as a matter of EU law, Article 50 allows the, e the UK to leave the EU without any being liable for any outstanding financial obligations. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister told me in Prime Minister's questions two weeks ago completely the opposite. Who's right? The Prime Minister or the European Committee? The, the, can I say to my honourable friend, I have uh, the Committee of the House of Lords uh, that he has quoted, that was quoted by one of, another of our honourable friends, I think it was on Monday's statement when I, uh, when I gave it, uh, did indeed make that uh, uh, say that in their view there was no legal obligation. Uh, there is a different opinion on this, and it is that there are legal obligations for this country when we leave the European Union in terms of financial payments to the European Union. And I believe, as I've said before, that this is a country that upholds its legal obligations. Liz Kendall! I don't think I've heard any minister ever say their government's plans would make our country poorer, as her Chancellor did this morning. Is that what the Prime Minister came into politics for? Yeah. Can, I, can I be very clear? What the Chancellor made clear this morning is that the, deal, the, the, the Brexit deal that delivers best for our jobs and our economy, that continues, continues to see our economy growing, this is not a case of uh, the deal making us poorer than we are today. Our economy will continue to grow. And that is what is clear from the analysis and what is clear from the Chancellor. Thank you. Order. 